We all know the doom and gloom story about people and the environment. Climate change, deforestation, desertification, coral reef die-offs, freshwater scarcity, soil loss, biodiversity loss. In fact, the loss of ecosystems everywhere because of people. We all know that story. Even though we're the source of these problems, we are also the solution. One of the thorniest problems that we face is how do we feed the world without destroying the earth? Imagine a fishing village. It could be in West Africa or Latin America or Southeast Asia where the fishery has been totally depleted. People can't catch fish anymore, so they turn to deforestation, cutting mangrove trees in order to make ends meet. But cutting trees reduces habitat and nurseries for fish and other species, damaging the fishery even further. As deforestation accelerates, devastating drought flood cycles emerge and coastal erosion gets worse. This leads to even greater poverty, which leads in turn to greater degradation in order to make short-term needs. This is the trap that we are in today, a vicious cycle in which environmental degradation and poverty are inextricably connected. Understanding that connection leads to an astonishing truth. If ecological degradation leads to poverty, then ecology leads to wealth. If we are to feed the world without destroying the planet, this realization is crucial. At Regenerative Resources, we know that it doesn't make sense to grow trees unless we address why people are cutting down trees in the first place. In partnership with local communities, we develop powerful nature-based solutions that approach both economy and ecology together. We create circular regenerative economies by transforming degraded landscapes into productive agroecologies. This transformation, in turn, creates the space and resources to regrow lost ecosystems. The ecosystems we focus on are mangroves, seagrass meadows, and marsh, all of which are crucial to ocean and planetary health. We are pioneers of regenerative seawater agricultures and hyperarid agroforestries. We have taken on the most challenging and degraded landscapes on Earth with some of the most ambitious regenerative projects to date, with extraordinary results. At Seawater Farms Eritrea, we transformed a degraded coastal desert into a series of mangrove agroforestries and wetlands, and without the use of any fresh water, created jobs for over 800 people and food for thousands. This laid the foundation for a new regenerative rural economy while also increasing biodiversity by a thousand percent, cooling local temperatures by two degrees Celsius, and rejuvenating freshwater resources, all in an area highly prone to drought and famine. This was the first iteration of our regenerative seawater agroforestries. At the Al-Baila project in Saudi Arabia, we partnered with Bedouin tribes to restore indigenous grazing systems and in the process reversed over a century of desertification in under a decade and established a living template for the reforestation of the west coast of the Arabian Peninsula. We formed regenerative resources with the mission to develop regenerative economies 
and restore degraded ecosystems in collaboration with local communities around the globe. Our goals are to grow millions of acres of mangrove forests, seagrass meadows, and marshlands, sequester gigatons of carbon, increase freshwater resources, and provide habitat for billions of animals, all while creating new economic systems based on agroecologies that reinforce ecological health. These and other regenerative systems are how we feed the world without destroying the planet. By cooperating with Mother Earth and her cycles, rather than attempting to dominate them. By partnering with local communities, rather than trying to dictate solutions. And by aligning how we produce our food, fuel, and fiber with ecological processes. Our systems are among the most powerful solutions, not just to climate and carbon, but to poverty, famine, drought, biodiversity and habitat loss, and the rest of that doom and gloom story that we all know. Now it's time to write a new story, a story about working together to create solutions, a story about transformation, not just of lands, but of people, a story about regeneration. Welcome, welcome. I'm going to let people in for just a minute here. It's great to see you all. Good afternoon. Good morning. Good evening. Wherever you are in the world. I know many of you are coming in, zooming in from all over the world. I'm going to keep letting people in. If you can, click down below and click the chat button. And, and you can let everyone know where you're coming in from. You can add your thoughts. You can share your thoughts with other people here. The Q&A on land restoration is at four o'clock. Today, we're gonna to be hearing directly live from my good friend and someone who always is pushing things to the ne next level, someone who's always inspiring me and someone who, you know, I just, I just always check in with, Neil Speckman. I, I've known Neil for, for over seven years now um, and, and at the beginning of my permaculture journey, we, we, we got connected. And since then, uh, we've been just keeping, keeping touch. And, uh, it's always incredible. Cause I'm, you know, you know me, I'm always working on something, but like Neil is always like the one I go to, to get like one up. Cause I'm like, Hey, Neil, I'm working on this. I'm doing that. And he's like, that's cool. I'm doing this. And it's like, <laughs> I'm like, okay. All right. I'm going to go back to the drawing, drawing board now and uh, up my game. Like every single time. It is amazing. He sinks my battleship and that's in the best way. And I think that for a lot of people, that's how they feel. They're like, this is it. This is the next level. This is the kind of energy and vision that's at the scale of the problem that we face. So I, I, I'm just so excited to, to, introduce Neil Speckman. There's still some people getting in, but Neil, do you want to start um, by maybe yeah. yourself or just you can start in and I'll you, just focus on You that. need to let me share screen. I think it's default disabled. And I know, I, I don't know if I'm the only one doing live stuff, but I appreciate you letting me break the mold. Um, 
But once you've enabled that, there's a bunch. All right, of stuff let's see if it stops in. recording. It's it's still recording. We're all no, okay. No harm host. done. You there can, we go. You control. All right. Um, hi everybody. I'm Neil Spackman. I uh, is this the third year we've done our future, Matt? This is our second year. Yes, it okay, is. Okay, so this is this is the uh, if we do it here, then it's going to be a tradition. But um, I was happy to uh, participate in this last year. It was a really good experience, and always happy to support Matt and and share with you know the audience that he curates the things that we're up to. I'm a I've been in the regenerative development world since 2010. If you know about me, it's probably because of the work I did in Saudi Arabia as co-founder of an endeavor called the El Beda Project. And I left El Beda about three years ago now, just under three years ago. And um, shortly after started a company called Regenerative Resources. And today I'm going to be sharing with you um, what we call regenerative seawater agriculture. This is um, halophytic in nature. We'll get into what that means. And uh, hopefully you'll come away with, with it with something that's useful for you and something that um, helps you in whatever, wherever you are in your journey. Uh, I am gonna be monitoring the chat. So if you, so just so that we can avoid like lots of microphones coming up, but I will be watching that so that you can, if you wanna say something directly or ask a question when it's time for Q and A, that's how we'll do it. And uh, I'm going to start sharing a video. Before we do that, I just wanna say thanks to Matt opportunity for the tireless effort you put into building the community around culture and regenerative world and the education you do. It's, it's been great to watch you and uh, I'm looking forward to see where we end up in another seven or eight years. Uh, with that, we're gonna try sharing a video. This is an introduction to the company we started and just raise, Matt, raise your hand if the sound is wonky, all right? We all know the doom and gloom story about people and the environment. Climate change, deforestation, desertification, coral reef die-offs, freshwater scarcity, soil loss, biodiversity loss. In fact, the loss of ecosystems everywhere because of people. We all know that story. Even though we're the source of these problems, we are also the solution. One of the thorniest problems that we face is how do we feed the world without destroying the earth? Imagine a fishing village. It could be in West Africa or Latin America or Southeast Asia where the fishery has been totally depleted. People can't catch fish anymore, so they turn to deforestation cutting mangrove trees in order to make ends meet. But cutting trees reduces habitat and nurseries for species, damaging the fishery even further. Deforestation accelerates, devastating drought flood cycles emerge, and coastal erosion gets worse. 
This leads to even greater poverty, which leads in turn to greater degradation in order to make short-term needs. This is the trap that we are in today, a vicious cycle in which environmental degradation and poverty are inextricably connected. Understanding that connection leads to an astonishing truth. If ecological degradation leads to poverty, then ecology leads to wealth. If we are to feed the world without destroying the planet, this realization is crucial. At Regenerative Resources, we know that it doesn't make sense to grow trees unless we address why people are cutting down trees in the first place. In partnership with local communities, we develop powerful nature-based solutions that approach both economy and ecology together. We create circular regenerative economies by transforming degraded landscapes into productive agroecologies. This transformation, in turn, creates the space and resources to regrow lost ecosystems. The ecosystems we focus on are mangroves, seagrass meadows, and marsh, all of which are crucial to ocean and planetary health. We are pioneers of regenerative seawater agricultures and hyper-arid agroforestries. We have taken on the most challenging and degraded landscapes on Earth with some of the most ambitious regenerative projects to date with extraordinary results. At Seawater Farms Eritrea, we transformed a degraded coastal desert into a series of mangrove agroforestries and wetlands, and without the use of any fresh water, created jobs for over 800 people and food for thousands. This laid the foundation for a new regenerative rural economy, while also increasing biodiversity by a thousand percent, cooling local temperatures by two degrees Celsius, and rejuvenating freshwater resources, all in an area highly prone to drought and famine. This was the first iteration of our regenerative seawater agroforestries. At the Al-Bayla project in Saudi Arabia, we partnered with Bedouin tribes to restore indigenous grazing systems, and in the process reversed over a century of desertification in under a decade, and established a living template for the reforestation of the west coast of the Arabian Peninsula. We formed regenerative resources with the mission to develop regenerative economies and restore degraded ecosystems in collaboration with local communities around the globe. Our goals are to grow millions of acres of mangrove forests, seagrass meadows, and marshlands, sequester gigatons of carbon, increase freshwater resources, and provide habitat for billions of animals, all while creating new economic systems based on agroecologies that reinforce ecological health. These and other regenerative systems are how we feed the world without destroying the planet. By cooperating with Mother Earth and her cycles, rather than attempting to dominate them. By partnering with local communities, rather than trying to dictate solutions. And by aligning how we produce our food, fuel, and fiber with ecological processes. Our systems are among the most powerful solutions, not just to climate and carbon, but to poverty, famine, drought, biodiversity and habitat loss, and the rest of that doom and gloom story that we all know. Now it's time to write a new story. 
a story about working together to create solutions, a story about transformation, not just of lands, but of people, a story about regeneration. Is that all right, Matt? Did that look? All right. So um, that's kind of an intro video that's available on YouTube if you want to see it again. But uh, what I want to talk to you today about is regenerative seawater agricultures and what that is and how that works. Cam, do you want to say hi? I'm in the middle of a presentation. Say hi to everybody. Okay, now I need you to get out. With an overview. The <clears throat> there we are. So this is a site in Mexico in Baja California Seward that we intend to purchase in the next six months. We've spent the last two and a half years in the pre-development phase of this project, uh, getting permits, uh, getting rights to purchase the land, developing relationships with uh, fishing communities that are nearby. They're not on this site, but they're both north and south of us. Um, developing a business and a financial model, uh, developing the political capital we need to move this through. And uh, that's, that's not the fun part. The fun part is this site where you can see the salt pans, you can see that there's a little bit of photosynthesis. These are mangroves along a berm that runs up the coast, but it's pretty much a dead site. There, we spent, I mean, our whole time, is, our whole team has spent weeks here and the only animals we ever see are vultures and coyotes. And they're not stopping by, they're passing through. Uh, this is what we're going to turn that into. This is a regenerative seawater agriculture system that has a number of different components and a number of different systems that kind of form a cohesive whole. But the short version of what we're doing and that you saw in that image of Eritrea is we are bringing seawater onto these coastal degraded lands and using it to create halophytic agricultures and mangrove wetlands and mangrove agroforestries. Halophytes are plants that grow in seawater. And our first senior science advisor, whose name was Carl Hodges, was the first to develop the concept of this whole thing where he realized that there are staple crops in some indigenous communities that grow in seawater, such as Desticlis in the Colorado watershed or seagrasses among the Seri and the Sea of Cortez and a number of others. And he did a catalog funded by the Rockefeller Foundation to, to explore the world and figure out how many halophytes are there that have cropping potential for 700. So we are, uh, using aquacultures first, this is an aquaculture piece down here. And instead of dumping the effluent from that aquaculture, which is what the whole industry does, we are pumping that effluent through these forestry systems 
as the source of nutrient and fertility to grow these crops, to grow the mangrove trees. And that's kind of the first step is, is we create seawater canals uh, and rivers, and we get that seawater onto the land. We bring it onto the landscape. And this, this is very counterintuitive. Usually when we show this to people, they say, okay, and how much does the desalination cost? And we, and we have to say, well, there, there's no desalination. It's just ocean water. We're not desalinating anything, except for maybe a little bit for the workers and the people who help manage this whole thing. Um, but this is hundreds of millions of gallons of water being moved every day, and it's just pure seawater. Um, after the aquacultures, that gives us a very nutrient-dense effluent, which in turn feeds coppice systems, algae systems, and uh, mangrove alley crops, where we grow alleys of mangrove trees. Then it gets to a wetland in the oysters. Coming off of the aquaculture. Matt, how long was I out? I I saw a thing that just said connecting in a circle. Yeah, so it was it was about a minute. So okay, great. it was it was right where the water um was coming in. Beauty. Okay. We'll pick back up. I don't know if that was my internet or something else, but uh, easy to pick back up on. So, <clears throat> but you guys all missed like three slides. Here we are. So that effluent, after creating these canals and these rivers of seawater moving in, we use aquacultures that are pretty standard aquacultures and the effluent is pumped through that whole system as the source of nutrient. Right, because on these landscapes, there's no fresh water, there's zero soil organic matter, there's zero soil, there's zero soil carbon, there's definitely not any phosphorus or nitrogen or potassium or calcium. And the base nutrient for this whole system comes off of the aquaculture effluent. In a typical aquaculture industry, they're just dumping that effluent into the ocean and contributing to um, But for us, that's, that's kind of the fertility engine for the whole thing. In the seawater agricultures, we are alley cropping halophytes. So we grow salicornia or sarcocornia or disticlus or sea aster or other crops, depending on where we are, with that aquaculture effluent and seawater. And it's alley cropping trees form and pest management uh, backbone. And the final step of this are essentially constructed mangrove wetlands where the last of that nutrient is absorbed and where we can produce product microalgae or macroalgae or 
catfish, tapia, or uh, salt, if we want. There's, there's lots of different ones. And wherever we are, we tailor the design both to the local ecology and to local markets. What this does to the watershed uphill is that when you get flash floods out of these deserts, that water will hit our system and then it will start to form what are called freshwater lenses, where the seawater forms a layer underground and that fresh water will sit on top, uh, just which is how all of Polynesia and the Pacific Islanders have fresh water. They have fresh water lenses. So this, this actually starts to restore fresh water aquifers higher up in the watershed as a positive externality of the seawater system. Um, so this is no waste and it's circular. My favorite part of the whole thing is that the aquacultures grow the forestry and we have, this is some of the proprietary stuff that we are working on, but we have aquaculture feeds that we can develop off of the forest. So the aquaculture grows the forest and the forest feeds the aquaculture in a totally closed loop, regenerative, zero waste system. Um, this is revolutionary when it comes to the aquaculture world. In most aquacultures, their operating, their operating cost is 60% feed. 50 to 60% feed is the operating cost of a typical aquaculture. We're our own feed off of the waste of the aquacultures, which is pretty cool. Uh, <clears throat> here are some of the things that we have produced in former iterations. And there's a lot more than this. Typically, though, we're going to have four or five anchor products off of each system that have a strong market and that we know that we can sell either locally or through export. Um, and then here's, here's some of the application that I'm really excited about. One of our products is animal fodder. And the fact that we can grow animal fodder without any fresh water use whatsoever is a game changer in places like the Horn of Africa or the Red Sea region, where you have lots of pastoral peoples who are subject to famine because of drought. This is a drought-proof system because we don't care if it ever rains. Our whole system runs on seawater, and that is an infinite resource that will never run out. Um, so this, this has massive implications for drought-prone and famine-prone arid countries that have a coastline. Um, <clears throat> and in fact, I'd, if I had a spare million dollars, I would send a task force to Madagascar right now, and they could start teaching people how to grow food with seawater and it would have a direct impact on the famine that's happening in Madagascar. Um, food security is directly related to that, but beyond the animal fodder piece and how that can affect pastoral animals is all the ways that this, all the different types of food that this can grow on landscapes that are otherwise quite desolate um, and where nothing is being produced. In terms of impact on climate and environment, because this is a very mangrove intensive system, uh, we sequester a lot of carbon. We currently in our pipeline of projects have the capacity to grow hundred million mangroves. Uh, and just those on their own net of all the other development work will probably sequester 15 million tons of carbon. 
Um, on top of that, in Eritrea, we had a 1,000% increase in bird biodiversity. And then the, you have all the ecosystem services of reestablishing mangrove forests on a coastal area, whether that's protection from uh, hurricanes to uh, an ability to adapt to sea level rise, to protection from storm surges and you know monsoon winds and all of that kind of stuff. So beyond, beyond the actual value of the products that come off of this, the ecosystem services are significant. Neil, real quick, can you let in the waiting room? Um, oh, do I do that? Yes. Yeah. Let's let everybody in. Thanks. Everybody gets to see everyone being let in. Here we go. Is that everyone? That might be, oh, there's more popping up, Matt. Okay. C'est la vie. Uh, another application here is uh, all the things that are happening with algae. I think Brian must have spoken at least a little bit on what he's doing with macroalgae. And, but algaes have a huge amount of potential in not just in foods, but bioplastics, biopolymers, the development of novel uh, textiles, the development of novel materials. And that's not something that we're big on right now, but something that we have the capacity to expand into as we build out these RSA systems. Something I'm excited about. Um, and then finally, cooling and greening. Our site in Eritrea was two degrees cooler Celsius than the surrounding area after we'd spent four years developing. And um, that's, pretty, that's pretty great for places that get as hot as Eritrea, but it, it, it speaks a lot to the microclimate. And as microclimates are aggregated over time, eventually you can start affecting the macroclimate. But this is likely to have significant effect at scale or when it's done at scale on the small water cycles and on rainfall in the interior of these sites that we develop. Here is one of the places where we're wanting to deploy this. This is actually in Southern Spain where there's a very salty river called the Guadalquivir. And in this region, rice, this is, used to be the biggest rice producing region of Spain. And now rice producers um, have had their production fall by 50%. They're producing half what they're used to because they are out of fresh water and they can't use the river water because the river water is very salty. So this is a degraded uh, rice farm that we may be acquiring in the next 12 to 18 months. And this is not a mangrove system because this is Europe where mangroves don't grow. This is more like a marsh-based agroecology. Um, but this is what we can turn it into. We can bring that salty water back onto the landscape and do multi-trophic aquacultures integrated with essentially a marsh-based agroecology. Um, we don't know how much biodiversity will increase on this site, but we do know that this is a region where lots and lots of migratory birds fly through um, between Africa and Europe. So we would expect to see a lot of birds come back to this place. 
That's one particular iteration that we're excited to develop that's not in the global south. And then I've already talked you through this one where this used to be a shrimp farm, highly degraded, highly dilapidated, extremely saline soils um, where normal plants will not grow, but we can convert that into a productive system that has benefits to local peoples, that has benefits to climate, that has benefits to biodiversity, um, and that is a regenerative circular zero waste system that depends on an infinite resource, which is seawater. So that is a very brief overview of what we're up to at regenerative resources. Fundamentally, we look for highly degraded coastal landscapes. We acquire them either by purchase or long-term lease or by partnering with local communities, depending on you know, what kind of action the context would demand for. We transform those lands into productive agroecologies and we commercialize the outputs of that. That's fundamentally what we do. We, um, we're starting out on you know, less than 15,000 hectares but there are 15 million hectares globally where this system could be deployed uh, to solve a whole lot of to solve a whole lot of problems, and uh, that's kind of what our that's we're not shooting for 15 million acres, but we do want to uh, grow significantly and heal as much earth as we can. And with that, I'm going to stop sharing, and and we're going to have a conversation. So let's. I'm admitting the, the next three people and, and let's chat. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want me to feed you some questions? Sure. All right, so just remember everyone, put all caps question before you write your question so I can more easily find it. And uh, yeah, let's, let's get to it. I see a lot of questions. I see a lot of people really excited. I see people that are inspired and hopeful because of this information, they see how much change can happen, how, you know, more change can happen on the coast and in the ocean, you know, they've seen this week and can happen on land, even though incredible things can happen on land. It's yeah. just, and, and it's also a space we never even considered. So it's like, not only is it something we never considered, it's even more powerful than we ever even thought possible. So it's, uh, it's something that, you know, gets me really excited. And when I heard that you were focused on that, we're focusing on this uh, after Albeda, oh, I just got so excited because it's like the coast. I mean, that's the ultimate edge environment. It is. It is, it is the edge. It's one of the most important edges there is. And no one else is, is addressing it. So I just am so excited about that. So here's that first question. Can marshes and other natural coastline permaculture ecological strategies be used to desalinate ocean water and create ways to create more fresh water for drinking purposes? I think you sort of answered part of this. Well, the answer is no, it's not gonna desalinate anything. Um, they can absorb a certain amount of salt, but they don't desalinate. What they can do is create a way to prevent fresh water from higher up in the watersheds from running into the ocean, right? So, in, and this is something that I spent a lot of time working on in Saudi with the Al Baitha project. That was all about flash floods. 
right? Um, depending on the watershed, you may have 80 to 90% of all fresh water running into the ocean. Um, particularly when we're talking about deserts and, and I'm still, we're still focused on deserts at regenerative resources. It's just desert coast now rather than desert mountains. And so uphill of that side in Mexico, actually within, I don't think it's the same watershed because they're to the side a bit, but um, we met with a community of citrus growers a year and a half ago. And they, they uh, I don't know who told them about us, but they met us in the road and like stopped us and said, we heard you guys deal with degraded land and help farmers who don't have water anymore. We are out of water and all our citrus is dying. Um, what can we do? And we sat with that community for a little bit. We, we didn't spend too much time with them, but uphill from us, if we were in the same watershed as them, we would start refilling the aquifers that their citrus depends on hmm. because we are absorbing that fresh water and getting it into the ground rather than letting it run off into the ocean. So that's, that's an externality of the system, but it's one that has significant impact on the rest of the watershed. So it's not, it's not that they can desalinate, but these kinds of systems can help increase freshwater resources. And and evapotranspiration would would increase by having plants there, and so you would technically be filtering the water and then releasing it through evapotranspiration from the kind plant. of yeah kind of, but it, it's it's, it's a trickle. It, it's that doesn't mean that there's a direct impact locally on right. rainfall. Um, yeah. That depends on the precipitation shed, and and a lot of other factors. All right, next question. How do you fight back or avoid toxic algae or algae blooms? In the, uh, in the ocean? Uh, in these Who, situations. Who's asking that question? Let's clarify. Um, it's the same person, uh, iPhone. Cri can, can, we unmute, can we unmute this person? <laughs> um, I'm not in control. Oh, who, okay, are. hold on. It's from iPhone. They're there, they're there. Oh. Yeah, I'm here. My name's Ethan Guy, and I'm from Austin, Texas. And this Hi, question Ethan. is for... Howdy. The question that I'm asking about toxic algae and algae blooms that do have toxic levels, they both kill fish in those vicinities, mm -hmm. both in mm -hmm. fresh and ocean waters. What can we do to decrease those levels? of those yeah, algae you, boom, blooms. So those algae blooms in general are caused by agricultural runoff, um, where you've got your nitrogen and your phosphorus fertilizers running off of farms and uh, into the riparian zones, and then they collect in a delta or in a gulf. And what happens is all that nitrogen and phosphorus gets consumed by the algae bloom. And in the process, it consumes all the oxygen in the water. And that's why all the fish die. And so we, um, the best solution to that that I have found in terms of something that I could do, like if I could wave a magic wand and say, hey, we're going to tax all synthetic fertilizers. And if you have runoff coming off of your farm, you have to pay a fee. That would solve the 
problem very quickly, but I'm not a king and I don't have a magic wand. Um, so what the concept that I've come up with and that we're actually, this is not on our website and not public information, but we are experimenting with floating wetlands in Florida um, as a way to absorb nutrient before it hits the ocean. Like small living barges? Uh, yes, you could call them small living barges if you wanted to. But essentially, if you create floating wetlands that will absorb that nutrient before it hits the ocean, then the, then the algae never gets a chance to bloom because the nutrient's not there. Right, so you've, you've got to absorb the nutrient somehow or prevent it from going in the water in the first place. Are there any clays or types of soil that you can place along, let's say, creek beds or sand beds and marshes that would ultimately take away those nutrients and decrease the algae? Yes, um, that's another one of the causes of dead zones in the, in the Mississippi Delta is that we have eliminated all the wetlands between Minnesota and, uh, and Mississippi. And so those wetlands typically are like filters. They, they filter a huge amount of nutrient out of the water and we've eliminated most of them. Um, the other, uh, there's a standard practice that the, I, I don't remember which US government entity it is, but there's, Recommendations that farmers plant what are called shelter belts along riparian zones as a way to help prevent that kind of pollution. So there are, there are tools that can be put in place, but it's gonna depend on policy to incentivize the use of those tools. That makes perfect sense. I really appreciate you answering my questions. The two examples that I had were the Florida coastline and then even in Austin, Texas, the algae blooms have gotten so bad in our rivers that yep. dogs and people get sick as well. Yep, well, Southern Minnesota has no swimmable rivers. Sadly. Uh, because because it's, it's agriculture runoff, that's what it is. But the... We, I'm not going to go into more detail on Florida because we're at least like 12 months away from announcing that program publicly. Uh, but we are, we are in Florida and prototyping different things and looking for political clout to start being able to deploy solutions. Um, thanks, Ethan. I'm going to mute you again and we'll go to the next person. Excellent. Thank All you. Right. Thank you. And so this next question is uh, uh, from Califia. What what were the operating costs for the project? Uh, it was choppy then, so she missed that. For which project? Uh, I believe the um, the coastal project, the current one. Oh, so the, we haven't we haven't built that yet. Um, that project in Mexico is a hundred twenty million dollar project. It will take us eight years to build it. We're going to have to grow forty five million mangroves in there. Um, and within, we think we'll 10x the value of the real estate in that decade. And it has a, an, I don't know if everyone's familiar with an IRR, but the real estate goes up in value. The 8 million tons of carbon that will be sequestered will be worth between 200 and $300 million dollars. 
Um, and then the, the management of that site, the operations and the sales of goods uh, justify that kind of investment. All right. Uh, will you be working with no local nonprofits as well? Yeah, where it makes sense to. Um, we already work with a number of nonprofits on a variety of different pieces of this. Um, so Mangrove Action Project is a nonprofit focused on restoration, and they're advising our restoration activities where we're not just doing agroforestry, but we're actually rehabilitating degraded ecosystems. Um, and there are a lot of them. Uh, Costa Salvaje is a group that we are in talks with. We've started to talk with them. In It really comes down to who's local, and it also comes down to context. But we do work with local with NGOs pretty much everywhere we go because you have to. This next question is great. How many microclimates does it take to start aggregating and affecting microclimate change? Is there a meaningful quantifiable acreage? And I recall you saying that it was affected, the site you had created affected the local climates uh, by two degrees. Yeah. Isn't that the magic number we're all looking for? <laughs> that was, But that was only within the project. That wasn't right. outside of it. Okay. Um, I have no idea what that number is. And it's likely a very different number for very different places. And times a year. Yeah. Um, how big does it have to be? The whole size. It had, <laughs> you know. How much of uh, nature do we need? Yeah, we need all of it. <laughs> we need all of it. Are a bit off topic, but where can we get news from, uh, uh, from the Albeda project? Mm. The... The Albeda project right now is focused on a housing development, uh, which I was, I was there when we started working on it and it took five years to get through the design and the permitting and the, the land acquisition for, um, they're building 220 houses for the worst off people among the tribes that I worked with. And that's been their focus for at least two years. They have an Instagram page called Albeda Housing. And that's probably the best place to follow. Um, I am not. I am not directly involved in Elbeda in any capacity at this point. I'm still very much in touch with the families I worked with, um, and with the princesses who funded it. But it's. Um, I'm not involved whatsoever in the day to day. I don't even know who their directors are right now. So it's. You know, I did my piece on it. Thank you so much for doing that. <laughs> so we, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut us short uh, 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 so that we have time to refresh, relax for a moment before we begin the next hour, because you're on the next hour too. Yes, I am. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I can talk all the way until Zach comes up if we want. Well, there are two different, um, there are two different uh, Zoom rooms. Oh, okay. I'm going to need a minute. I'm going to get some, some green juice in me. I'm going to like refresh, jump around and stuff so that um, I'm ready. Cool. <laughs> but there's cool. one final question, which I think is apropos. Um, what is your contact information? Where can we learn more? Uh, how can we get involved? How can we promote mm. what you're doing? So our, our site is regenerativeresources.co. Um, and there's contact. You, you can sign up for a, 
semi-regular newsletter that I'm supposed to be writing every month. Um, you can, if you're an investor or if you're from a country where you'd like to bring us to develop a project, you can reach out to us through there. Um, my email is nspackman at regenerativeresources.co. And um, I also have a blog on Medium where if you Google my name in Medium, you'll, you'll find it. I'm trying to post weekly on right now writing mostly about frequently asked questions that I get from investors and that I get from bureaucrats who are trying to decide if they want to host a project in their country. But um, that's, that's, that's it. The website, the blog, my email should, uh, should get you to me. Thank you so much, Neil. Yeah, it's my pleasure. This is this is my favorite stuff to talk about. Well, this is the kind of stuff that uh, completely engages me, and it stimulates my curiosity and my imagination, and uh, puts all those the, the 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 fears that arise out of the story that you talk about in that opening video. Mm. I put them to rest for me. And allow me to to focus on you know solutions, focus on action, uh, because I know that these things are possible. Yeah, it's that narrative is really deep. Uh, this is actually the subject of my next blog post. But um, does everyone remember from the movie The Matrix when Agent Smith is interrogating the guy and he's like, "I know what your species is. You're not mammals. You're a virus." Um because we go from place to place and we consume all the resources and then we move on. Right. And a lot of people, a lot of people think he's right. A lot of people agree with agent Smith and, and they're like, they're in the agent Smith narrative. Um, and my narrative is that we are a keystone species. Um, that, that if we're operating the way we're supposed to, that we're actually the, the key to ecosystem health. And that and that's exactly it, what Patrick wrote, that, that we can be stewards um, and that we ought to be stewards. And so the fundamentally, the systems we're trying to create are tantamount to new indigenous systems enabled by technology. Um, that these are systems that could persist indefinitely Right, which is or or the other word for indefinitely is permanently, and that gets into the permaculture. Right, that's what it is. It's it's a permanent system that can support people indefinitely. Love it, and um, that's what we're trying to build. I think we've got the right recipe for it, and I think that's that kind of that underlying narrative and that underlying effort is something that we can all do. We can all contribute to solutions, and we don't have to. It's not that we're bad by nature for the earth. It's that we're bad by habit and that we can change the way we behave and interact with it. So we're a keystone species. That's uh. thanks for coming to my Ted talk. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Neil. Thank you everyone for being here. I will see you all in 14 minutes and we'll, we'll keep it going. All right. See you then. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, everybody. Bye.